I think it's safe to say that many of us are more cynical than our ancestors, and we have developed that cynicism (laughs) as a natural response to the world that we live in. Uh, It is probably not beyond your notice that you live in a world that is constantly trying to sell you something at every given moment of every given day. The likelihood is this morning between objects that are in your own home to billboards on the road to ads on the radio. If you listen to any music coming in wherever you probably already had five to 15 products pitched to you today just on your way to worship at 10 a.m. in the morning because that's the world we live in. If you went through your social media scroll you probably also got very personalized ads, very specifically targeted because they think you want their product. And the response of many of us is that we develop a certain cynicism that we just block it all out as, yeah, none of that's worth listening to. I noticed this with my children. Um, they like to watch the Food Network on uh, an app. And for some reason, Food Network's algorithm has decided that my children need ads for quote-unquote man-boosting formula. I don't know exactly what that means, but one day my kids run in and they go, Dad, we know exactly what to buy Grandpa for Christmas. We need to get him some new... Because it says if you're an old man, this will boost you. And he's an old man. We should buy this for him. Because they don't have a filter to know that this product is below, and I'm not trying to pick on this brand, maybe it does boost your whatever. I don't know, but certainly, um, I think it's probably not that legitimate. I think they tried much too hard to sell it. But for my kids, every ad they see is reality. I remember the disillusionment on Abigail's face when we first bought a stuffed crust pizza, and the cheese didn't really stretch like it did in the commercial. She goes, what's up with this cheese? It's supposed to stretch. And I was like, yes, dear, but that's the way the commercial looks. It's not the way reality is. And that cynicism makes us a lot like a New York City subway rider. If you've ever had a friend that lives in New York City, they uh, have, if you're a New Yorker, you learn this incredible ability to be totally unaffected by the world around you, particularly on the subway. There could be someone naked playing the violin. You don't notice it. There could be a rat carrying an entire pizza into the subway. Whatever, I don't care. You don't notice it, you don't react. Because if you make eye contact, if you emotionally react, then you're gonna get yourself into all sort of awkwardness. So you learn to look straight ahead, put in your earbuds, and hum and num num the whole world does not affect me. Because you've got to block out the noise. I say all of this because the reality is that we have gotten very good at clicking the channel when our hearts feel pulled in any way, shape, or form. Because so much of the world wants a piece of our heart, we've decided that no one is getting any of it. And so we just click to the next channel. You know what this experience is like. If you have watched TV late in the evening, maybe you have some insomnia, Sarah McLaughlin starts singing, and you start seeing the dogs with the rib bones showing. Click! I'm not giving any money to you again, right? Or just for $1 a day, you can help click. No, I can't fix all the problems uh, in the world. If we let all this data in, it would crush us. I remember coming back from college 
And like many young, naive college students, I had this experience in college where I became more aware of the world around me in probably a good way, but in a way that overwhelmed my parents. And so it was like, mom, this and this and this and this is wrong with the world. And I never knew it was wrong with the world. Did you know it's wrong with the world? And my mom is such a sensitive, kind-hearted person, as many of you know, she literally could not hear it. It would crush her soul to hear about all the things that are wrong in the world. And she would just kind of say, Caleb, I can't, I can't deal with that. I can't process that. If I was aware of all the kids in the world who are suffering, I literally would never sleep. Don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. I don't say that to criticize her. I just say it to be, that's a natural thing a lot of us do. That when our hearts start to feel pulled towards something, click. Because we just know that we can't take one more thing that we've got to worry about in hearts and minds that are already pretty full. Um, As you know, those of you who are part of this church, we have been working through a series on the Holy Spirit and all the ways the Holy Spirit works and acts in our lives and in our world. And today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit convicting us. We're going to bounce off of something Bruce talked about several weeks ago. And Bruce talked about this word paraclete or advocate or comforter or convincer is a work that Bruce used. That's where we start to see in the New Testament this teaching that the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. And my question for us today is how do we allow the Spirit to convict our hearts without being guilty of clicking to the next channel as soon as it starts to happen. I'm going to start in John chapter 16, uh, verse 8. Today is a little bit of an unusual sermon. If you guys have been here a long time, you know I like to have one text and just stay in that text all day. This Holy Spirit sermon series has forced me to move around a little bit more than I like to, so just stay with me. I'll try to introduce everything before we get it, but we're going to hit a couple of different texts today. This is John 16, uh, and this big discourse that Jesus gives on the last night of his life. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The way I would break this down is that Jesus has kind of three things that he wants us to get here. To simplify this down a little more. He wants you to know that you have sinned and you have messed up. He wants you to know that it doesn't have to stay that way. That you can be rehabilitated. You can start to come back from those things. And you only have a little bit of time to do it. Right? He says he convicts the world about judgment. That there is judgment coming for all the terrible things us human beings do. About righteousness... The Spirit will remind us of what we need to do because Jesus will not be here to teach us any longer. And about the fact that Satan stands condemned, that the clock is running out, that we have very little time left before God is going to make all things right and we need to make amends for what we've done. This is all part of the way the Spirit convicts us. What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be in your life? The Spirit reminds you that you've made a mistake, that 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 mistake can be remedied, and that you don't have forever to take care of it. One of the ways that we process this and we have to think about this is about guilt. Um, Some of you probably have a guilt problem. Some of you probably worry too much about what you have done wrong. And for you to hear that there is judgment coming, you're like, oh no, not more judgment. 
because you live in judgment all the time. Uh, this is particularly true of our part of the country. Maybe you've heard of Catholic guilt. Okay, this is something that's often talked about sociologists, by sociologists, that Catholic religion, of which our region is steeped, of which, if we're honest, we are sort of rooted in, in a way, if we're honest about it, that that sort of thinking has a lot of guilt associated with it. And so it's important for us to process and to figure out um, how to deal with guilt in the right way and the wrong way. And, and Paul, in 2 Corinthians, really helps it with us. Hey guys, there are kids' classes out there if you want them. Out in the trailer? That's probably new since you've been here last. But if you want them, they're out there. So you know. All right, 2 Corinthians. This is a passage where Paul is talking about guilt versus um, good guilt versus bad guilt, so to speak. And this is what Paul says. Even if I caused your sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Uh, this is about what uh, Paul wrote, often called the severe letter. You can call it the nasty letter if you want, because it's basically what it is. Paul got sick of him, and he wrote him a nasty letter. And now he's kind of backpedaling that. And he goes, even if I caused you sorrow by this nasty letter I sent you, I don't regret it. I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but it was only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy because you were made sorry. But not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to you repenting. For you, become, for you became sor- sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this manner. Uh, This is called the human slingshot. It is not something that I would remotely be interested in doing, but apparently at some beaches, they have this. You get these two bungee cords. You bring them down. I think they actually attach you to an ATV and drag you out and then let go and your body flings forward. Uh, I don't know if it's the best image, but this is what godly sorrow is supposed to do. It is supposed to get us wound up enough that it propels us to be different. So when John says the Holy Spirit convicts us of the judgment coming for our sin, that should create the kind of sorrow or guilt that moves us to be different people. This is really important when we talk about what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to um, convict us and move in our hearts, is that the Holy Spirit convicts us in a way that encourages us to change and to be better. Not to sit and to roll around in the self-loathing of how bad we are. This is a really helpful distinction I found with a lot of people. A lot of people who feel this overwhelming guilt just sit there all day just bad-mouthing themselves. I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. Oh, how did I do that? Oh, oh, oh. And Paul would say, that is not what the Holy Spirit does. That is not Holy Spirit conviction. That is a pathological guilt complex that really is not particularly healthy. Paul calls it here a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And I think he means that both metaphorically and literally. This is the kind of sorrow that often leads people to suicide, where they are just so overwhelmed by their depression about what they have done and where they've been that they can't get past it. It defines who they are. And Paul says that is not what the Holy Spirit does. What the Holy Spirit does is says, yes, I've messed up, 
And I'm going to be different because of it. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to change. Maybe you have been blessed to experience someone who has, um, has had uh, an experience of guilt that they've come out the other end of and they can talk about really honestly. This is really cool and really fun when somebody can go, yes, earlier in my life, I was this and I acted this way and then God convicted of me, I repented of it and I've come out the other end. And I'm not ashamed to tell you about it because it's not who I am anymore. It's who I was and I've changed. That is a godly Holy Spirit conviction that says I've got to be different and then moves us to be different. It's the difference between a guilt that says I messed up, I can fix it, and I messed up and I'll never fix it. The Holy Spirit says no, we can work on this. We can do this together. Let's move. Let's change. It's what we call sanctification, this big fancy word for becoming more holy. This is what the Holy Spirit does, is convict us this way, and it propels us into something new so that we can be that person that goes, that's who I used to be, but I don't live in the guilt of that anymore because I'm not that person anymore, thanks be to God. And that's what Holy Spirit conviction looks like. But also, um, there's an honesty. So while it's not uh, rolling around in guilt, it's also not ignoring legitimate guilt. That's what 1 John says. First John's writing to a group of Christians, he's, and in John he says, uh, John says in First John, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sin, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, this is really simple here. Part of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, while we don't want to roll around in guilt, we have to admit a little bit. Uh, there are some of us who want to think that there is, there is not, this might be weird today, there is nothing to, uh, wrong with us at all. And we kind of live in a world that wants to teach that a little bit. That, you know, there's not really, yes, there's a few monsters out there. There's terrible, you know, if somebody kills millions of people, they're really bad. But other than that, you're okay. It's not a big deal. And John says, you're a fool if you think this. If you think that you live a life where you're perfectly pure of sin, you never make any mistakes, that is insane. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit convicts us is to remind us you are not perfect. And it's okay to admit, I'm sorry, I messed up, I did wrong. Um, We are not going to just fix our problems by like really positive thought. We are not going to read a great book or listen to a great seminar or watch enough Oprah where we'll be like, man, I am perfect now. It's just not the way humanity works. And so there's this this balance where the sorrow does not overwhelm us, but at the same time, we also are not foolish enough to think that we're free of sin. And so that's why John talks about the Holy Spirit doing those three things. The first one is reminding us, yes, you have messed up. And the second thing is to say, um, you can get better. It can uh, improve. All right. Preston, can you help Judy know where the kids went? I think she's a little confused by it. Um, All right. Hebrews 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters. This is the the last piece of that, the the third piece of that Holy Spirit conviction. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, 
as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I think there's a couple of ways that we can process this importance of doing it while it's today. Remember, the Spirit reminds us that Satan has been judged and that his time is short, and that our time to fix things is short. And it's short for a couple of reasons. We can talk about it uh, kind of on this grand eschatological scale, sort of the end of times, what God is bringing. And that one day Jesus is going to come back and we literally will be out of time. We can talk about it as far as our death. It is important to know that if you have a broken relationship, you are not promised tomorrow to fix that relationship. These are all ways we run out of time. But what I love about this Hebrews passage, I think fits very well with the conviction of the Spirit, is that we also have a clock on the softness of our heart. Our hearts um, are a little bit like wet concrete. There is a period with wet concrete where you can do anything you want to it. A child can scribble their name into it or put their handprints. But then once that is hard, it's really hard. I told a few of you a few weeks back, uh, when I was in high school, my parents wanted to get rid of a sidewalk in front of our house. And they said, we're going to have to get a sledgehammer and break it up. And I was like, whoa, that sounds really cool. And they're like, sure, we'll give you 100 bucks to do it. And, you know, like an idiot out of a Tom Sawyer novel, I was like, awesome. And so I was like, 100 bucks just to break stuff? How great is that? If you have ever broken, broken concrete, you know that the first four or five swings is beautiful and liberating. Just to be able to smash something. You feel like the Hulk. Boom, boom, boom. But even as a 16-year-old, by about that sixth swing, all of a sudden your hands start to ache from the impact and your back starts to hurt from the swing. And before you know it, you're exhausted. There is nothing harder than breaking up concrete. And this is the way our hearts work. Sometimes they are soft enough to be malleable and to be reformed. But if we ignore them long enough... They get hard and they will not change. Um, I think this is fair. Feel free to clap back at me in the questions if you want. I think this is really important too as we get older. I think you've maybe met someone in their later years of life who has gotten so hard they're impossible to deal with. Now college kids, they can be naive and you can swing them around like the breeze sometimes. Sorry. But nonetheless, that's kind of the way they can work. They can be very impressionable in high school and in college. But the flip side is true that once we get to a certain age, many of us are not going to change our beliefs. And no matter how much good evidence we have, we just dig in. If you do not believe me, check the social media and just look at people you know who are older. They are confident they know exactly what they think. And what we hear here from the Hebrew writer is that as long as it is today, as long as your hearts are still soft, encourage one another. Because there's going to come a day where you've ignored it so long that it's going to get crusty and you're not going to get through to anybody. I think when we look at all of these things that the Spirit does, what I really want us to take away from today is not to push the snooze button. Uh, maybe you've had this experience where you're supposed to wake up to an alarm clock. Most of us, it's our cell phones. And it goes off the first time. And we, we, we swipe it and say no. And then it goes off again two to five minutes later. We say no. 
And at least on your phone, I don't know why it does this, but they get longer and longer and longer on the snoozes. At least mine do. So like it's like five minutes and then 10 and then 15. I'm like, oh, it's been an hour and my button alarm's been going off. And it is really, if you're not careful, you hit the button that says, I don't just want to snooze it.